Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We are in, I think, a unique time in history uh, for the church, that there are unusual things going on that place us in a situation that is somewhat unprecedented. And this isn't just my idea. Many of you know who Tim Keller is, very famous apologist, pastor from New York City, who <clears throat> wrote this. There have been many times in the past when the church was in serious decline, but in those times, society was still nominally Christian. There hadn't been a wholesale erosion of the very concepts of God and truth and the basic reliability of the Bible. But things are different now. Things are different now. We've never really been in a time where just the existence of God is not something taken for granted. The reliability of the Bible is not something taken for granted. In fact, more people disbelieve these things today, it would seem, than, than who believe them. And so, <clears throat> it's important for us to kind of regroup and think about who are we as a church. And I would suggest that what is really needed for the church going forward is what a guy named Mark Sayers calls gospel resilience. We need gospel resilience, more so than cultural relevance. The church has talked a lot about cultural relevance, certainly there's some value in that, but more important than that is gospel resilience. And the core values that we're going to be going through here in the coming several weeks are designed to help all of us be strong in the Lord, to help you and me to be faithful to the end, to help us to persevere through this life, as Pastor Brian preached to us last week. And so, with that in mind, we have a vision statement here at New Life. Uh, we don't trot this out too often, so it's good to be reminded this is the vision statement that the staff and elders here at the church um, embrace. We want God's kingdom to spread throughout Yorktown, Muncie, and the world as a community of ordinary people empowered by the gospel for extraordinary living. That's what we're about. We're ordinary people. There's nothing special about us. But by the gospel, there is the possibility that we can live extraordinary lives and actually make a difference, not just in Muncie and Yorktown, but actually throughout the whole world. That is possible, and that is the way the kingdom of God spreads, when local congregations give themselves fully to the gospel. So that's the vision statement. That just encompasses all that we do. And so then we have these five core values that are... <clears throat> easy to remember because they're labeled by the first five letters on the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E. And so, again, we're going to take one core value each Sunday, a couple of core values we're going to give a little additional time with a couple of weeks. But today we're starting, reasonably, with A, and the A core value we call adoration. And so, core values, they're just like these kind of values, these, these principles that we stand on to fulfill that vision statement. These are the things we believe are important for us to be gospel resilient Christians, strong in the Lord, faithful to the end. So here's what we mean by adoration. <clears throat> because we have been brought into relationship with God through faith in Christ, we intend corporate worship at New Life to be a rich encounter with the triune God as we gather to hear His Word, partake of the sacraments, sing hymns and contemporary songs, and call out to God in prayer, all with an attitude of reverence and awe. 
So by adoration, what we mean is worship. What we mean is what we're doing right here, which we consider to be the heartbeat of the life of our congregation. John Stott once said this, the highest and noblest activity that anyone can participate in is worship. The highest and most noble activity. What that means, friend, friends, if, if that's true, and I believe it is, what that means is that among all the things that you have on your schedule this week to do, and I know you're busy people and you've got a lot of people you're meeting and a lot of things that you're doing, the most important thing that you're going to do this week is what you're doing right now. This is your most important appointment right here with God's people gathered to worship. So we got to think about what, what is worship? How do we worship? Whom do we worship? Those are the three things that we're going to consider, and we're going to get those all out of this Psalm 95. So if you're able to stand, please do that. <clears throat> Let me read Psalm 95. Uh, there's a sense in which all the Psalms in the Bible, all 150, are given to us to help us to worship. These are songs that are given, were given to the people of Israel to, to use in their worship. But this psalm is unique in that it's not just used for worship, it's actually about worship. So we can gain significant instruction about worship from Psalm 95. <clears throat> not sure who wrote this, maybe David, we're not sure, but here's what it says. We know God wrote it uh, through whoever put pen to paper and wrote this, so here it is. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship. And bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Holy Spirit, please come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so again, three quick things here. What is worship? How do we worship? And whom do we worship? So first thing... We just need to define our terms. The word worship might mean different things to many of you. So, so what is it? What is worship? Just let me point you to verse 6. Very clearly, this is a psalm about worship because the writer says, Oh, come, let us worship. That's what this psalm is about, coming before God in worship. So what is worship? This is my definition of worship. Worship is giving praise, devotion, and adoration to what is most supremely great and valuable. Now, that's a pretty broad definition of worship. You might notice um, that this is not a, a definition of worship that is specific to the way a Christian would worship, and that's because worship is not just something that so-called religious people do. 
Worship is something that everybody does because we are all created to be worshipers. Ecclesiastes says this, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity into man's heart. There's a sense of eternity in, in all of our hearts. It is a sense of something bigger, longer, greater than ourselves. That's just an instinct that all of us have, that we know there's someone bigger and greater than us out there. There's something greater and more meaningful to live for in life. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. That applies to everybody, not just to Christians and churchgoers. Romans 1, Paul elaborates on this ideal a little bit here, and he says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now in the context here, the truth that they're suppressing is that there is a God. And what Paul is saying is that the created order testifies that there is a God. But people see that, they know there's a God, but their reaction to that is to suppress it because there's something in us that doesn't want there to be a God, because if there is a God, that means we have to give our lives to Him. And not everybody wants to do that. So Paul goes on and he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them through what has been created, because God has shown it to them, again, through the created order. And then he goes on and he says, They then, that's just referring to sinful humanity, they, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what Paul is saying here is that everybody has this instinctive knowledge that God exists, but the sinful reaction that we all have is to suppress that, to hold it down, to push it low and away, and to rationalize how it's not true so that we can live however we want. But when we suppress that knowledge of God who we should worship, it's not like the instinct to worship goes away. What happens is that instinct and that drive to worship just gets channeled to something else. And what Paul says is people end up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. So then we begin to look for things within our line of sight, created things around us. And we try to find something to worship. It's the human condition. There's a guy named uh, Dostoevsky, you know, very famous Russian writer, said this, So long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. All of us are glory chasers. We're all looking for someone to fulfill our hearts and to deliver us from our problems. For all of us, there's something we consider great and valuable, something that deserves our full and complete devotion. Whatever that thing is, whether you're a Christian or not, you're worshiping it. Everybody is a worshiper. As an example, <clears throat> um, those of you in a math class might uh, remember Pythagoras, the great Greek philosopher, lived about 500 years before Christ. He came up with the Pythagorean theorem. So a very famous mathematician, Pythagoras. Pythagoras was not just a mathematician, he was actually also something of a cult leader. And he had a group of people who followed him in his sanctifying and worshiping of math. Pythagoras thought that math was holy and uh, Pythagoras and his followers began to assign different values to different numbers and they came up with the idea that 10 was the most sacred number. And they worshipped it. 
and they prayed to it. They prayed to the number 10. And, and they're quoted as saying, Oh, the all-comprising, all-bounding, firstborn, never-tiring, holy 10. They thought 10 was worth worshiping. What we will do is find anything to worship. Isaiah talks about this, chapter 44. This is talking about a carpenter who goes out and cuts down a tree. And what Isaiah says is half of that wood, half of the wood from the tree, half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, the rest of the wood, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god, O block of wood. And he's referring to actual religious practices in that day. Now, I know you think that sounds ridiculous, that sounds absurd, I wouldn't worship tan, I wouldn't worship wood. But you do worship other things like entertainment, and sexual freedom, and sports. You want to see some hero worship? Tune in tonight. <laughs> Money, reputation, good grades, intelligence, physical beauty, cars, houses, phones, music, movies, Donald Trump, social justice, a wife, a husband, children, we'll worship anything. That's just the way our hearts are designed. Our hearts are a little bit like our stomachs, you know, our stomachs are always craving food. And you know what it's like, you know, you eat a great big meal and you're, you're absolutely full and you say afterward, oh my, I'm so full, I could never eat another thing. Like, just wait like four hours and you're hungry again. You want to eat more food. And our hearts are that way, they're just, they're just never satisfied. They find something and it kind of satisfies the heart, but it goes away and we're just constantly looking for something to satisfy the longing of our hearts. It's this, it's this innate inclination that we all have to worship. We're all worshipers. Maybe you're not a Christian. That's fine, but you're a worshiper. And what's really important is that you worship the one who is worthy of worship. <laughs> that you don't worship false gods, but worship the true God. And so look what happens here in verse 2. Let's just see what worship is according to the psalmist. He says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. So that's really what worship is. You're coming into the presence of God but, but not just any God, you're coming into the presence of a God, verse 3, who is a great God and a great king above all gods. In other words, he's the great king above all idols, we might say. It's like when you come to worship the true God, you're coming into the presence of the one who truly deserves your worship. Not an idol, not a false god, not the number 10, not a block of wood but the one true transcendent living God who calls us all to bow down and to worship Him. That's what's happening when we worship. We're coming into His presence. Right now at this very moment, we're in the presence of God. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, doesn't God always, isn't He always in my presence? I mean, doesn't God go with me wherever I go? So why do I need to go to church to be in His presence if He's with me all the time? I mean, that's a good question, and my answer to that would be, uh, the use of an illustration. I, I like to, to use this to, to answer that question. 
came from John Frame, and he says, uh, imagine that you're a servant in the palace of a king. And so you're working in that palace, and you're scrubbing the floors, and you're doing the dishes, and you're doing whatever your jobs are in the palace. And so in some sense, you're in the presence of the king, right? You're in his house. You live in his house. (laughs) So you are present with him in some way, but there are certain occasions when the king comes to you and says, I want you to come into my chambers. I I want an appointment with you. I want some time to sit down and talk with you. And you go into the king's chambers, and you are now in the presence of the king in a way a little bit different than you were before. That's what's happening when we gather on Sunday mornings. Yes, God goes with you wherever you are. Yes, he's present with you everywhere and at all times. But he's present with you in a different way when you're here. And so here's the way I would encourage you all to think about Sunday morning worship. Think about it like this. I have an appointment with the king. I mean, get that on your calendar. If you had an appointment with the king, to just you know, bring it down, think I'm a human king, if you had an appointment with the king, I'm quite sure that you would think of that as the most important thing you were going to do that week. And you, if you had an opportunity to meet with the king, you'd probably clear your calendar to make that happen. Right? You wouldn't tell the king, sorry, I, can't, I got something going, king. Can, can we meet another day? Because this interferes with my schedule. You don't say that to the king. King says, I want you to meet at this time. You say, yes, sir. (laughs) I'll I'll be there. Because he's the king. So here's how we should approach worship. It's an appointment with the king. The great God. The king above all gods. The one true God. So the second thing to consider is this. How do we worship? How do we worship? This is very important to consider. Because an idol is not just a false god, friends. We can practice idolatry by worshiping the true God in a false way. God has a specific intent for how we are to worship Him, and that is that our worship is always to be regulated by the Word of God. So worship is not primarily uh, an opportunity for you guys to be entertained. That's not really our goal here. Uh, Worship on Sunday mornings is not an opportunity for us to be creative and to think about all these fresh, new, innovative things we can do in worship. It's not our responsibility. It's not on the agenda for worship. Our confession states it like this. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men. He's not to be worshipped according to our preferences and creativity and imagination, nor according to the suggestions of Satan, of course, or under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Only what is prescribed in the Bible is what we are legitimately authorized to do in worship. You know those stories in the Bible where somebody does something that God didn't command in the Old Testament, like he touches the ark when he shouldn't have? You know what God does to them? Kills them. I mean, right on the spot, they're dead. That's how important it is to God that we worship Him in the way that He has prescribed. So we're not here to be entertaining. We're not here to be creative. We're here to do what we do in accordance with the Scriptures. And so let's see what Psalm 95 says. How do we worship? There's four things here. Psalm 95 doesn't tell us all that there is to be said about worship. Obviously, we just had a baptism. This passage doesn't command us to baptize. But other passages do. So we look at the whole counsel of God to see how we are to worship. But we do get some 
helpful instruction in Psalm 95 about how to worship. So the first thing we see is that we worship by singing songs, right? Verse 1 and 2. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Music is a, a wonderful tool for giving praise to God. You know, if somebody sings a song to you, that is an act of praise. When I was in seminary, we, uh, uh, there was a, a Chinese student there, and we invited him into our home, and we served him dinner. And after we were done with dinner, he said, I want to sing a song for you. And he just actually, right there in the dining room, just sang to us, to, to Mary and me, as a way of expressing thanks. Song serves that purpose, right? I mean, you go to a football game, you sing the fight song, right? That song is a way of expressing your devotion to your team. This is the role that music often plays. Um, music is often a very good teaching tool because when you connect a melody with words, there's a great memory tool there. And uh, one of my seminary professors said to us one time, people will remember what they sing more than they remember what you preach. I think there's some truth to that. We remember what we sing, so it's important that we're careful about the words that we sing here every Sunday morning. Here at New Life, we believe that the Holy Spirit has worked throughout the ages in guiding people to write certain songs, so we don't think that the 17th century is the only time the Spirit was at work. Nor do we think that the 21st century is the only time that the Spirit is at work. The Spirit has motivated and directed people to write healthy, good, edifying songs throughout history. We want to use the best of them, whatever age they come from. But what we seek to do is strike a balance between old and new. I think that's an appropriate thing to do. So singing songs, got to do that when we worship. <clears throat> Secondly, we worship with an attitude of reverence. Look at verse 6. Splendor and majesty. Yep, excuse me. Wrong song. Six, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. These are outward bodily actions that reflect an inward attitude of heart. I mean, it would be appropriate, actually, when we confess our sins, for us to, to kneel. And we should probably do that. Maybe we could turn around and kneel on the floor and put our elbows on the chairs. I, I, I don't know. That would be entirely appropriate, very biblical. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of what one commentator said, getting low before God. Get low before God. That, that's the attitude we should always bring to worship, an attitude of humility, low, uh, lowliness, um, reverence. Not coming just presuming upon God's blessing, not with a frivolous attitude, but coming with reverence. I want to ask you, friends, how, how do you show reverence when you prepare for worship? How do you show reverence when you engage in worship? I mean, I think that can be demonstrated in a number of different ways, but, but it's something worth thinking about. You shouldn't come to the house of God flippantly or casually, but reverently. And then thirdly, we worship God by hearing the word. By hearing the word. Look at the end of verse 7. Very end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah and on the day at Massah 
in the wilderness. So that's just a reference, those places, Meribah and Massah, these are references to um, places that Israel approached in the wilderness uh, in Exodus 17, Numbers 20, it's described there. And God said some things to them, and the people quarreled with God. They didn't like what God was saying, and they just kind of resisted and argued with him. And so what the psalm is saying is that when God speaks, don't partake of an attitude of quarreling and resistance, because what that is is a hardening of the heart. And so when you get together for worship, in whatever place where you worship, you ought to be hearing a lot of Scripture, because that's how God speaks. And so when the scripture is read and when the scripture is preached, God is speaking. And what this psalm is saying is when you hear God speak, don't harden your heart. That is, you come with a humble willingness to submit and receive what God has said. You don't quarrel with God. Now, it doesn't mean you don't think through things and try to understand them properly, but there's really kind of active and passive quarreling. I mean, there's an active quarreling which just says, this is ridiculous, this is silly, my God would never say that kind of thing, this is so out of date, this is so primitive, I don't believe this, I'm not going to do that. That kind of attitude, you know what, every time you're thinking like that, your heart is just getting a little stonier. It's an active resistance. There's also, though, a kind of a passive resistance, too which is just like apathy. I'm just here because mom and dad made me come. I'm just here because my friend invited me, and I don't care what happens. In fact, I think I'm just going to nod off and go to sleep for a little while, sneak a few looks at my phone. This is not important. That's a hardening of the heart, friends. Be careful. When the word is going forth, the warning is don't harden your heart. But this is what we do in worship all the time, is always the word is going forth. And then the last thing here is we worship by gathering together. Gathering together. Notice the plural pronouns here in this psalm. At the very beginning again, O come, let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise again. Not let me, let us Go down to verse 7. For he is our God, and I am the person of his pasture. Wait, no, it doesn't say that. We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. These are all emphasis on on a community, on a a group, on a family. That's what we mean when we say corporate. Corporate worship is a reference to worshiping together together as a gathered community. There is private worship, yes. I mean, at home, there are times when you're praying and you're reading the scriptures on your own. That's private worship. You ought to do that. That's true. But private worship is no substitute for public worship. They need to both be happening. People make the mistake. Some people will do a lot of private worship. They're devoted by their, their prayer and Bible reading at home, and they never go to church. It's a dangerous imbalance. Some people, they're in church every Sunday, but they never spend any time in the Word or reading the Bible in private. It's also a dangerous imbalance. There's private and public worship, but let us not neglect public worship, corporate worship. The emphasis in this psalm is we're gathering together as a people. It's not just about you. It's about the family you belong to as a believer in Christ. So I should just mention, I think, 
you know, we do have <coughs> this great benefit as a result of technology of online worship. And um, we're very happy to offer online worship, live streaming worship. There are people watching right now. Welcome. We're glad that you're tuning in. Um, and one of the reasons that we started offering this here at the church is because of the unique situation that we're in um, as, a, as a nation, as a world, and as a church with this pandemic continuing to go on. And so we're very happy that people can tune in on the web and watch by live stream. But I do want to say that watching worship at home by live stream is not a long-term solution. It can't be a permanent solution for you because we have to gather together, shoulder to shoulder, eye to eye. We have to be with one another. And so, again, I know that there are people who are at home for good reasons because they're concerned about their health, and, and I affirm that, and that's a good thing. But let me just say, for healthy, able-bodied people, staying home permanently, watching from your couch, is not a viable solution. We've got to be together. Hebrews 10 says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So, some directions here for how we should worship. Last thing to consider, whom? Whom do we worship? Whom, who is this God who we come to worship every Sunday. Two, two things about this God. First of all, He is God the Creator. That's the God that we worship. The God who made the universe. Look at verse 4. In His hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His, the sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. God is the Creator of all things. The entire universe created by Him and because of that, notice how this is written, because He created them, these things are His, it says. The sea is His. The sea belongs to Him. The oceans belong to Jesus. The mountains belong to Jesus. The sun and the moon and the stars belong to God. But it's not just the universe that He has created. If you go on, you'll see in verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So God didn't just make the universe, God made you, and God made me. And just as the universe are His, is His, because He made it, so is it the case that because God made you, that you are His. You belong to Him. And that's one thing worship does. We come and we're reminded that we're not really the center of the universe, God is. But we're reminded when we come to worship that all things don't belong to you, they belong to God. When you come to worship, you're reminded that all things occur not for your glory, actually, but for God's glory. When you come to worship, you get your heart and mind recalibrated to realize what is actually true, that there is a God at the center of all things and you have been made for His glory. And you can forget these things, right? It's like, you know, when you're driving your car and, and the car gets out of alignment and it starts to pull to the left a little bit. You know, you take your hands off the wheel and it starts to pull to the left or maybe to the right. And so you take your car to the garage and the mechanic realigns your wheels. And then you get back on the road 
and to head straight down the road toward your destination. That's what happens when you come to worship. Because during the week, your heart is going to swerve to the left. And your heart's going to swerve to the right. It's going to get out of alignment. And you're going to forget that you're actually here for God. And so you need to come to church. And, your, and, and the presence of God in a worship service realigns your heart. And now you're headed in the right direction again when you leave on Sunday morning. Now you're going to get out of alignment again. That's the way it works, but that's why you keep coming back. I can't tell you how many people who have said to me sometimes, you know, I just woke up this morning, I didn't want to go to church, but I went, and I'm glad I did. I hear a lot of people say that. Why did you not want to go to church? Because your heart was out of alignment. Why are you glad you went to church? Because your heart got back in alignment. That's what happens when we gather together. So we come and we worship God the Creator, but the second thing we do is we come and we worship God the Redeemer. Now, notice this, verse 10, <clears throat> as the psalm ends, it's uh, God again um, reflecting on that situation in the wilderness when the people quarreled with him. And it says in verse 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they've not known my ways. That, that, there's a description of what it is to be a sinner. Our hearts go astray, we don't know who God is, we don't really care, and we just go about our own way. That's, that's sin. But if you go back to verse 1, look how the whole psalm starts. O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. These are people who are sinners, but these are people who are saved. They've been redeemed. They know that there is a rock of salvation in their lives. And so, how does that happen? How can sinners whose hearts go astray become people who can say, I'm saved? And the way that happens is when you put your faith in the Redeemer who has been sent by God as a sacrifice for your sins, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't named here. This is hundreds of years before Jesus came, but we look ahead and we know that that's how salvation is accomplished. God came into this world. He took on human flesh. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He did everything exactly right, yet He laid down His life in love. He shed His blood, and He was risen from the dead, and He lives today and reigns over the entire universe. And the way a sinner can become saved is by turning from all of your efforts to please God on your own and put your faith in that Redeemer. And what happens is that when you know Jesus as your Savior, that opens up a whole new vista for worship. Because when you place your faith in Jesus and you come to worship, you don't just come to worship because you ought to. You know, He's the Creator. He's the mighty God. I guess I have to worship Him. You come because you want to. Because you know now that that God who created everything loves you. You know now that that God was willing to go to an infinite length to save your soul. You know that this is a God who now looks upon you with mercy and grace, not treating you as your sins deserve, but treating you with an eternal love, offering to fulfill the longings, every longing of your heart. And so when you know the Redeemer, you come with a heart full of praise because you know that you're now accepted by the Father and eternal life is yours. That's the proper attitude for worship. So, friends, <clears throat> when you come, 
to church on Sunday mornings. It's true that um, you might have a different experience from Sunday to Sunday. Sometimes the sermon speaks to you, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you like the song choices and sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's too cold in here, sometimes it's too warm in here. But every time you come, friends, you enter into the presence of the living God. Every time. The great king above all gods. And that's an appointment you don't want to miss. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you for calling us to worship. We thank you for opening the way for us to worship you through the giving of your son on our behalf. Lord, please bless Sunday mornings here every single Sunday at New Life. Please, Lord, let it happen as we have written it here that we would have a rich encounter with you, the living God. As your word goes forth, as we sing songs of praise to you, as we come with an attitude of reverence, and as we gather together as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.